Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, uh, welcome to the New Books Network podcast. Uh, I am your host today, Benjamin Phillips. I'm joined today with Dr. Michael Roth, uh, president of Wesleyan University. Dr. Roth, how are you today? I'm doing well, thanks. Glad to be here. Excellent. Uh, Dr. Roth, your your recent book that we're discussing today is The Student, Short History by Yale University Press. Uh, how have you enjoyed working on this book? Well, it's been an interesting process, actually. Um, this is my third book with Yale in recent years, and I I wrote a book called Beyond the University that they published in 2014, which is subtitled Why Liberal Education Matters. And that was uh, a book I really set out to write. I was uh, reviewing one of their other books in what they call the Why X Matters uh, series, and and. So, oh, wouldn't it be good to have a book on why liberal education matters? And wrote to an editor there, and and then began working on a proposal for them. Uh, and then uh, a few years later, d- did a book uh, more on kind of political issues in higher education, called "Safe Enough Spaces: uh, A Pragmatist Guide to Free Speech and Political Correctness and, and uh, Affirmative Action." That that was that was fun, but it was it was also things I'd been writing in the press, and then well along that in that time period, an editor at Yale said that she had this idea. Uh, her name is uh, Jennifer Banks, and she's a wonderful writer herself. It's a new book out called Natality. Uh, she said that she had this idea about doing a book on the student, and that I I was the person to do it. So I came. I wrote a proposal as a intellectual historian. My proposal was to try to look at this over a time, uh, episodically, but still over a long period of time. And uh, it was fun to, to write because uh, I'm no expert on uh, many of the things I'm writing about. So I, I was reaching out to colleagues and friends and saying, you know, if you have one book to read on uh, medieval apprentices, what would it be? And sometimes their response was, I wouldn't ever do that. <laughs> you know, it's just too big a subject. Um, and others, at times, they were more helpful. 
So I learned a lot and, and you know, tried to uh, write a, a brief history that uh, points towards some issues in contemporary higher education. Yeah. Yes, I, I'm sure specialists will be furious at various points. That is the, the job of the specialists. And I guess so, yes. It's the, I'm sure you know, some academic book reviews of great book with the misfortune of mentioning my field. Um, yeah, but yeah, when I, I wrote Beyond University, you know, I'm a European historian and uh, my other work was in uh, modern European intellectual history. And uh, I told a, a colleague at, at Berkeley, prominent American intellectual historian that I had written this book. And he said, I, I shudder to think of all the errors it will contain. <laughs> and uh, at least no one's found any errors. There may be people who disagree uh, with it, but um, and I, you know, I, 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 I'm sure that someone will find, as you say, something in their area of ex expertise that may not sit right, but did the best I could trying to write a book for the, a general audience about a subject people are really interested in. And what does it mean to be a student? I thought it was quite good. Um, yeah, thanks for doing this and taking that on. Um, so I guess diving into the work, you, you really do start at the very beginning um, with first chapter on iconic teachers and exemplary students, with Confucius and Socrates and Jesus. Why is it so important to lay our foundation here in deep antiquity? Well, I know I, I, I started thinking about what does it mean to be uh, as a student and thought, well, you it, it usually means... Uh, you have a teacher, and and then I, I thought of these figures who are um, these iconic teachers in the West uh, and beyond. And I've been teaching a course on virtue and vice and literature, history, and philosophy for for quite a while. I, I'll hope I turn it into a book uh, in the next few years. But we start off with Confucius, and um, and I've been teaching. Uh, and these great books courses, uh, either Plato or uh, other uh, ancient texts. And so I, I thought it would be interesting to compare uh, being a follower, being an interlocutor, and being an imitator. Uh, those are the only ways to describe the people who, who learn from Confucius, Socrates, and Jesus. Um, and particularly around Jesus, uh, you know, many people, of course, don't think of him primarily as a teacher. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I thought, uh, what if we took it in that, you know, we took them in that spirit, and I just focused on a couple of the of their students, if I could put it that way, um, then maybe I could articulate these modes of learning, uh, being a follower uh, in the Confucian case. And and the and the there's some tensions around that. Like if you follow too closely, the master reprimands you. Uh, uh, being an interlocutor with uh, uh, Socrates, and uh, although his students probably learn more from watching him question others <laughs> than they may have learned from being questioned themselves. Uh, and then in Jesus' case, uh, people who were uh, called to imitate. Uh, his life as as best they they could, 
um, and um, to devote themselves to that, um, to the Christian project. So it was, um, it, it's, a, it's a way of getting started. I and mean, it's not a, a foundation in the sense that everything built subsequently is built on it. I wouldn't want to make, I don't know how I would substantiate that claim. So I don't exactly make it, but it is a way of orienting the reader to a wide variety of being a successful student. You know, you can be a successful, uh, it is praised by your teacher, <laughs> a follower of Confucius in a certain way, uh, beloved by Jesus in a certain way, or profiting from Socrates' uh, 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 his, his questioning and his example. Just as a matter of curiosity, these, these three are teaching primarily adults, grown men, already economically independent out. Do you think um, that should affect in any way the way we apply these categories? I mean, th this book primarily being about college-age students. Yeah, well, I started off, you know, as you know, I mean, after that chapter, I, I deal with informal schooling in the pre-modern period. And, and by the end of the book, we're talking about college students. That's my major interest. But college students are neither... Uh, fully adult, let's say, and full and that children, and so um, I, I do think um, uh, that some of the issues uh, that about teaching children are certainly removed when you're an adult learner. Um, but but putting yourself in the hands of a teacher, um, I guess when you're an adult, you're putting yourself in the hands of a teacher rather than being put by your parents or by some other forces into the teacher's orbit. But it, it surely matters um, what kind of student you are uh, as, uh, as uh, according to when in life you become a student. So uh, I, I've written a little piece, uh, an op-ed that will come out soon, about uh, how, how one's when when parents deliver their their sons and daughters at Wesleyan, they often say to me, oh, I wish I could come back to school now because now I could really learn. Then I was too young to really appreciate all the opportunities for learning. And so I do think there's certainly um, different aspects of, of being a student that come out at different points in one's life. And uh, that could be a whole nother book. You know, I mean, there are these programs these days for adult learners that are, you know, en enrichment programs where people are not worried about building a skill to get a job. They're worried, well, they're trying to figure out how to live a more meaningful life. And, and, um, and that certainly, you know, it takes out the economic independence angle, which is an, is an important one through a good portion of this book. Yeah, that, that's good. And may, may those programs increase if, you know, as you're saying, the the main goals of college should be to to make you a lifelong learner. Yeah. Yeah. Keep you in that, that way of life. Um, I mean, you bring up at the end there that um, your chapter on pre-modern but not ancient education. Fascinating overview, by the way. Thank um, you. Very. Um, you, you, you posit there that like the, the twin goals of education, particularly for non-elites, which is mostly what the chapter is about, uh, are independence and social integration, which there's you know a, a tension there uh, naturally. Um, 
it's kind of at the heart of education, but how during this period are they seeking to manage that with these rising forms of education? Um, yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. I, I do think that uh, the goal for many families was to see their children being able to be economically independent, um, whether they got married into another household or able to set up a household of their own uh, to no longer be a burden <laughs> on the parental household. Uh, but in, in so doing, to be integrated into a community, uh, a village, a town, more rarely a, a city, and it's interesting that you, as you that you detect a tension there because for modern people there is a tension that is as as an individual uh, we often think that uh, uh, well we often think of the individual as standing apart from a community as uh, as uh, independence being a, a, almost a radical autonomy. But not so in the pre-modern period, where being independent meant you were also you were also part of a community. Not that you you know that it was compromising your independence. You could only be independent within the context of a community. So you were, to use that old postmodern phrase, you were always already in a community, always already entangled in a community. And if you tried to break apart from the community to be independent, you probably couldn't survive either because you needed their support or because they would kill you. <laughs> because you would be too, you know, if you were too wild, a anti-community member, they would be afraid of you and see you as a threat. Uh, uh, and so uh, where, is, where we, you know, as we being moderns and postmoderns, you know, we, we often think of individuals as, as really, you know, like that libertarian vision of standing on your feet apart from anyone else. Um, and I think that that doesn't that notion of a of personhood doesn't really uh, become attractive to people until after the Enlightenment, right? That's um, yes. Speaking of the Enlightenment, that I mean that that raises the questions. It's just part of this narrative uh, that we're dealing with this time period, um, and it is to some extent it's an overdone question that everyone has to deal with, but everyone has to deal with it. So how, how do you see you know, during this period of late pre-modernity or on, on the threshold of the modern era, as we have you know, the Reformation and Renaissance changing what we learn and who learns and how they learn it, uh, how, how do you think that is laying the groundwork or leading into the alignment? Well, I mean, I think there, there are, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of people have, have, pictured this for us. I mean, part of it is certainly the in, the increase in literacy um, that comes along with the Reformation and with, uh, at the same time, in, in some places, um, the increased contact between and among villages and towns so that um, in order to uh, keep networks of communication open over greater distances than one had used before you needed to be able to send messages and 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 and, and writing and basic uh, uh arithmetic become more valuable for people as trade increases contact increases reading the bible of course becomes a um uh, uh, something that is inherently desirable after the protestant reformation for more pe for more people uh and 
And so the, before you get to the Enlightenment, there is uh, also the technology, of course, of circulating text with uh, printing uh, and a, a developing curiosity about the world and its history um, that is uh, met by or uh, satisfied sometimes by uh, uh, being able to read about the world and its history. And so in the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation and then in the Renaissance, especially, uh, well, in, in Southern Europe and elsewhere, I, there is a, um, a cultural shift. I mean, what is Stephen Greenblatt called a swerve, right, towards uh, uh, a, a, a culture that prizes literacy more than it had before as a vehicle for community cohesion, self-understanding, and getting making one's way in the world. So all of that, you know, is 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 prior to the what we conventionally call the European Enlightenment in the second half of the 1700s, um, and uh, and definitely is a um, a groundwork for it. Of course, still it's only a minority of people who can read. It's only a minority of people who are doing these things, but it's a growing minority, um, and it prepares the groundwork for the explosion of educational institutions that uh, really is characteristic of the late 1700s and especially the 1800s. And that that really is kind of the core of your book is in, or the central argument of your book is in that, that time period. So uh, you, you write that, I mean, again, your, your central argument is Kant's late 18th century definition of the Enlightenment as freedom from self-imposed immaturity. Can you just unpack that a bit for us and what he means there? Sure. Sure. So I've been teaching this essay, What is Enlightenment, for a long time. When I was when I was a student, uh, in those days at Wesleyan in the 70s, you know, we, we would have a seminar on Kant. We read all three critiques one semester. I mean, I, I don't know how that happened, but there it was. Uh, and uh, But in my classes these days, I, I, I teach... Uh, what is enlightenment? And uh, almost every year, certainly every year. And and in the beginning of that essay, he, he says, "What is enlightenment? Is freedom from from uh, self-imposed tutelage or immaturity?" And what that means is that uh, we keep ourselves dependent. We keep ourselves childish. Uh, we have ways of making ourselves irresponsible vis-a-vis -vis authorities and vis-a-vis -vis the world. And enlightenment is our moving away from that irresponsibility, that childishness, that failure to take responsibility for one's life in the world. And um, and that it's a process, of course, for Kant, it should go slowly, not to, you know, not, don't rock the boat so much. Um, and um, and so to me, it was, it's a, it's a, it's a definition that speaks to college-age students. I, you know, I teach this with college-age students who in some ways are extremely independent and in some ways are very uh, immature or dependent and fall back on childish ways. Um, uh, and so that notion that through my education, I should learn to think for myself, uh, stand on my own feet intellectually, um, to not be a follower, uh, but to be, uh, or in some ways, autonomous in relation to other people. Um, and 
And that seemed to me um, a great way of thinking about uh, what successful student years are like, that you, you learn, uh, uh, and it, happens, it can happen for the rest of one's life, and you learn, yeah, gosh, I'm still, I'm still following uh, something that I've never interrogated about myself that I was taught when I was, I don't know, 20 years old. And, and now I'm thinking, why do I believe that? And, and that, that you're freeing yourself from your automatic obedience to something that you haven't fully considered. And freeing yourself from automatic obedience to something you haven't fully considered is uh, a form of freedom that comes by being a student. Right. Very good. Um, do, do you see in that the the potential for the not so much a rejection of what you had automatically believed, but a more mature and self-conscious appropriation of that? It certainly can be. I mean, sometimes, and sometimes these things happen in, in waves, right? You know, you might first reject and then, um, and then um, reconsider, you know, that your automatic need, you know, automatic would be a form of, of obedience. Yeah. And so as this, this, this way of thinking is going on and spreading, um, I mean, you can't even kind of, for us, the high enlightenment, this is changing the institutional framework of it too, right? Uh, and so we have birth of the research university and the development of a different kind of campus culture. Um, it just becomes more normal and accessible. Um, but with that, as you have more people, you have to have more ways of distinguishing it. So you have student types emerging. Uh, you write at this point though, in the next chapter from Kant, that the goal shifts and it's no longer in the Kantian mode to arrive at independence and maturity, but to delay that arrival for as long as possible. How, how did this kind of take place after the high enlightenment? Well, I think what happens is not so much a, a, a goal of delaying, uh, uh, the, not delaying the process, I guess delaying the arrival is, 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 is uh, accurate enough, but, but that in the uh, 1800s, um, you you have the development of, of modern schools, which you know from are, are aimed at giving people basic skills so they could participate in the nation state and the economy, um, and um, and so as in, in places where people, there's increased percentages of of inhabitants of an area voting that they able to make informed choices, that all happens as 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 you know throughout the 1800s and. In some cases, in a very dramatic way, like in, in France in the second half of the 1800s, very centralized education. But during this period, and this, I write about this uh, in the chapter to which you refer, there is the development of uh, the research university, and most importantly, from my perspective, the research ideal, which is not to discover the truth with a capital T, but to... Um, engage in a process of learning uh, that will have no terminus, that will lead to, that learning will lead to answers, but those answers will lead to more questions, which will lead to more, uh, the, a continuation of the process. And that the notion of, uh, of building, uh, as Humboldt and others developed it, was one of, of, of inquiry of being the foundation 
of studenthood or studentness, that you learn to be someone who inquires, which is different from being someone who perfects their skill or learns simply how to you know, make enough money to survive or prosper, that, that you learn to be someone who has an appetite for inquiry and that inquiry will go on. Um, and that's a good thing. So um, uh, it, in, in um, the German universities, uh, American uh, tourists and, and, and visiting students are quite surprised that students have all this freedom to go to the classes they want to, they could do it, and they act out, you know, as, as young people do. I mean, they, I write about the American fascination with German dueling, the German university students who are getting drunk and having sore fights, and, you know, and, you know, the kind of proto-fraternity culture we, might, we can recognize. But in Germany, the goal is that, you know, yeah, they're going to do that stuff, but eventually... You're going to have to ask your own questions, and then you find a teacher who asks questions that you that you think are productive, and and you continue to ask questions. You don't you don't find a dogma that ends questioning. Your goal is to find modes of questioning that help you get along in the world and whatever that means to you. Um, and it's and, and and that that notion of an institution that doesn't just provide dogma. And doesn't just provide skills, but provides an ethos of inquiry. That I think is the, at the heart of liberal education in the United States in the 20th century uh, when it's at its best. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. So you, you mentioned the, um, the, the sterile dogmas that prevent inquiry, and you also discussed earlier the, the pitfall of an extreme Socratic irony that just distrusts and yeah, everything and that never has any actual commitment in content. Do you think this sort of, this research ideal kind of recaptures that? I mean, as Aristotle says, you know, the philosophy begins with wonder. Do you think this is a, a more just institutional form of that? Well, it's, 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 um, it's really related to that. I, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, Aristotle, as you say, this philosophy begins with wonder, but it then, it, but then it goes on to do this kind of detailed work of uh, trying to understand the world around you, um, with, and whether it's the ethical dilemmas or the or the you know, basic physics of the world around you, and that uh, so you don't wonder leads to inquiry. It's not the same thing. I have this conversation with my students every. Every year, I teach my virtue class. Right? And what is what do they think is what wonder? What is wonder? Is it? It's not the same as curiosity. It's not, you know, it's related, but curiosity is more pointed and aims to be answered. Wonder is more reverent, perhaps, and and uh, and more. Uh, there's an element of surprise and delight. All of those things are important in inquiry. But inquiry also, you know, you want to know how to make a, a better cup of coffee. You know, you could try different things, and 
not everything will be, you know, some will be better than others. And, and, and I think that, that the, the important part of the inquiry is it can be productive without having a terminus. And, uh, and, and that, uh, you know, you, you may not know what the ideal car is, but you can tell when it's, what it's running, when it's right, when, when your car is running better than it was yesterday when it was broken down. Um, and, I mean, there are people who say, well, that's because you have a notion of the ideal car in your head. Maybe. I, I think it's more that you have a notion of what you want to do next, where you are now, and you try to find strategies and tactics to get there from here. And um, an inquiry is the way to do that rather than dogma. Um, so speaking of just as universities rise and proliferate, um, we have questions, I mean, coming into the 19th century of racial integration and women on campus and then the GI Bill, uh, just these massive shifts to the, the, the load that universities take on and the cultures that are present. How are these impacting or even reflecting earlier shifts in the idea of the student? Yeah, that's a great question. So I spend quite a bit of time on the book on the the... The, the problem that slavery posed to Enlightenment figures because um, on the one hand they say um, yeah, everybody should be able to learn, stand on your own two feet, get rid of self-imposed maturity, but not black people. They can't do, they can't do that and, and, uh, because there's, there's sla enslaved people. And, um, and so in order to justify um, this extraordinary oppression of, of people because of the color of their skin, um, they come up with all kinds of ways to show that black people can't learn, can't be students. And um, of course, uh, many people show the idiocy of, uh, of this uh, point of view and, and the, and the, um, you know, the tortured contradictions that the thinkers get themselves into. And, and over time, of course, uh, with the eradication of slavery, uh, there's the recognition uh, that one of the characteristics of human beings is the ability to be a student. Well, what about women? You know, then that is, what about immigrants? And then, you know, and, and, and so throughout the second half of the 1800s and into the 1900s, the uh, questions of how best to build a, a community of students, uh, uh, those questions arise with real force. Um, and, and so you find schools going through all kinds of steps to try to say, we want independence and integration, to go back to that part of the book. And, we, and that means we need integration. It's only some people will integrate in a community. We can't have women in our community because the men won't be able to learn if there are women around or or they, we can't have black people in our community because uh, they will corrupt the community because of their racial inferiority. Or we can't have Jews in the community because they um, um, will never integrate successfully. I was just listening this morning to a podcast uh, 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 called The Gate Crashers about the amazing things that Columbia University did to um, create uh, uh, barriers to Jews getting there, and, they, and it was because they wanted a community. And you know, you know, to be in a community, you had to be Protestant and you had to be a guy. And so all these Jews were showing up and saying, "I hey, know we're guys, um, and um, and we got good grades." And then I said, "Well, it's not just grades. It's like you know, be part. Of, it's like singing. 
It's like, so what can you sing? You know, oh, it's not just singing. It's, you know, and, and then it became, all of these barriers created in the name of community, but it's like, it's, it's in the name of excluding people from your community. And through the course of the 1900s and then in, uh, uh, and now in our own century, um, these barriers to entry have been reduced, not eradicated clearly, but dramatically reduced. And, and the goal of having a community of, of inquiry uh, has been tarnished by the racist, anti-Semitic, and sexist ways people try to maintain the community. But I don't think the goal of having a learning community is wrong. So how do you have a community and also promote access to it? Um, and and I think we're wrestling with that now. I mean, I just this summer I decided that Wesleyan would no longer privilege um, uh, applicants to the university whose parents went here. And and for some schools that's like a big deal. They won't give that up uh, because they in the, because it's in the name of community. Um, but. You know, we, we, what I think we've seen in the course of the last hundred years or so is that you can have a community of inquiry without um, the, the kind of barriers that keep certain kinds of people from participating, from being part of the conversation and part of the, the, the learning experience. And kind of related to that in definitely in time, but I think also in theme as well. Uh, you have kind of the rise of student activism uh, in the 60s, kind of the hallmark of that time. I mean, it's definitely continuing. He's a uh, grad student at Ohio University. I could definitely attest to that. Um, how does that come up? And do you think that that is a, an extension of you know, being a student and that liminal space of integration or a distraction from the the learning community oh i think it's it's uh i think it is characteristic of being in this liminal space um it's characteristic of being in a place of inquiry where you don't take things on authority um it it, it you know the, the the nature of student activism changes over all periods of time i mean you could call the dueling in german bars kind of activism or acting out they were but it was not political but it was anti-authoritarian. It was anti it was thumbing their nose at the authorities, the authority of the university. In the first half of the 20th century in the United States, well, even before that, you know, there were a lot of student student protests, but it was mostly protests so they could party more. You know, we want to have more rights to drink or more rights to duel or you know, shoot guns off in the dorm. And uh, and you know, they students bridled at being treated like children by their professors. Um, and uh, at a time in the late 1800s, when the when the students were wealthier than their teachers, uh, typically, um, you know, they're not going to take any, they're not going to take orders from people they they would otherwise order around if they were <laughs> if they weren't on the campus. So, um, so that uh, in into the you know the, the post World War One era. Uh, is a kind of anti-authoritarian dimension of student activism. When you get to the post-World War I era and subsequently, uh, students are also a, a laboratory for radical ideas. I mean, this had happened before that too. Um, but um, I mean, the, the, but it, it really, from the 1920s through the 1960s, um, 
especially on college campuses in the United States and in, in certain European uh, cities, uh, student groups, sometimes with the help of professors, become uh, uh, laboratories for exploring alternative visions of how we should live together. And this becomes very powerful in the 1960s, partly because of the dramatic increase in just the sheer number of students uh, who are college in, in college. And of course, because of the Vietnam War, when students, um, if they weren't in college, would have to go serve in, uh, overseas in a war that was grew incredibly unpopular and was built on lies and injustice. We, we, we now know is built on fabrication uh, uh, of, of information to the public. Um, so, so the, but at the time, students were rejecting a society um, uh, uh, that they, they could reject from the campus because they were protected in the campus in a way uh, well, most of the time. And then the, you know, the massacre of students at Kent State and, uh, and, and killings elsewhere show that they weren't as protected as they might have thought. But with the decline, with the end of the Vietnam War, Certainly, there is a decline in student activism in the '70s, and now it re kind of percolates at you know at various institutions in different ways. Now, but not with the same general intensity that it had in in, in those days, for sure. Right. right. That's, that's very helpful context. Thank you. Yeah. So, so you kind of get to this at the end, but your programmatic statement being that the college should prepare them to thrive by instilling and creating these habits of mind and spirit that develop, you know, like, like you said, with Kant over the lifetime through the process. What do you see, especially as someone who's, you know, been in the university context for 50 years and is a president now, what do you see being the main obstacles um, towards developing that those habits uh, for modern students? Well, there were just dramatic economic obstacles um, that, affect student life on college campuses all over the world and and but I'm most familiar with you know this country um and and we live in a society uh uh where economic inequality weighs heavily on everybody who's uh, a student and who's you know older than 15 or something that they there is a pressure not to be an economic loser that is very different from when I was an undergraduate in the 70s. When I was thinking about graduate school, like today, there were no academic jobs. I mean, I was told my advisors who, who liked me, and was there, they, they said, don't go to graduate school You'll never to get a job. You'll never get a job, they said to me, an academic job. And, um, you know, go to be a student, but you'll never get a job. It's just no job. Um, and at the time, I was... You know, uh, my parents didn't go to college, and it was a sacrifice for the, financially for them to send send me to school. And I said to them, "Should I? Uh, you know, I don't know what to do. I I love being studying everything, and I I was lucky to get a fellowship to to go to graduate school, but I wasn't sure if it made sense if I should start working." And my father at the time said, "You know, you can always make some money." I mean, says your uncle's a cab driver; he can fix you up. You know, it can, you find a way to make money. I worked in the kitchen when I was a student at Wesleyan. Um, he said, if you don't try, you'll never know whether you should have tried. So if you didn't try and you fail, 
you know, big deal. I don't think parents have that attitude. No, I think they feel like if they, you try and you fail, you're doomed. <laughs> you know, that you know, if, you're not, if you're not making a gazillion dollars, you're, you're making zero, which is not true. But certainly it is more true than it was that that middle range of professions is, is just harder to access uh, or um, harder to, to, to live with uh, make the, or support yourself with. So I think that ways have, that keeps people from, uh, um, from exercising this learning as freedom. I, I think good old American anti-intellectualism <laughs> um, uh, in there too. I mean, there's a, there's a, an understandable reaction against elites right now in the United States. Um, it's very easy to, you know, to attack elites. If you're a leftist or, or on the right, everybody attacks elites. And because, you know, we, because inequality is so dramatic, um, uh, it, it's um, a- a- anti-elitism is, 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 is powerful. And, and, but that means um, that lots of students don't have, don't believe in their professors. They don't believe in the institution or certainly lots of Americans don't believe that college is worthwhile as they did before, you know, and, and, and the growing distrust in institutions us led to a growing distrust in colleges and universities too. And I, I think that, um, you know, partly I wrote this book to, to, to argue for a more idealistic notion of being a student and it's not being a leftist or conservative or whatever. It's about embracing inquiry uh, as a form of freedom and that this is this is a good thing whether you're a religious person or a secular person whether you're a technology f- person or an elementary school teacher that you know living a life that puts inquiry in the middle of it um, uh, is a life through which you can develop your capacities and and that's a, a wonderful life to lead it doesn't mean you don't have to worry about skills because we do, you know, you need skills and it doesn't mean you don't have to worry about, you know, uh, material things. You do have to worry about them. But I think that um, this joy of inquiry is something that one experienced, uh, one really prizes and should prize because it's important for the individual and it's important for democracy uh, uh, in which people are supposed to choose their leaders to be able to engage in inquiry, to decide who who should be governing us, and to and to work with your neighbors and and fellow citizens uh, to choose the people who who will uh, lead our communities and cities and country. So I think it's very important not to um, leave inquiry behind in the service of just skill building. Uh, because I think that um, that attitude of inquiry uh, and conversation and engagement is is vital for us as individuals, but also as as citizens. Yeah, Ben. Um, thank you. That's a, a wonderful call for our times. Um, in, intervention and the state of things right now. I know I, I really appreciated the work. Um, I've had some of your lines ringing my words as I prepare my this week. Um, so this book again is from Yale University Press and will soon be available there and many other places. Is there anything else you're currently working on that we can be looking forward to? Well, I'm starting to work on a, this book on virtue and vice and uh, 
the first chapters are um, on uh, Aristotle and Confucius, and uh, and uh, next next up is Aquinas, uh, and uh, I'm sure I'll make re- lots of mistakes, and then uh, eventually I'll get to um, to uh, contemporary uh, writers and thinkers, and and my interest there is to very quickly is to to chart the course from uh, the idea of virtue as um, as a strength to virtue as a vulnerability, and then the rise of um, um, ver- the thinking about virtue as um, linked to suffering, really, in our own time, and um, and trying to al- offer an alternative uh, account of being virtuous that's not so grounded in in um, having suffered <laughs> or being a victim. So uh, I have a lot of work to do, but I think in the next few years, I'll, I'll get to it. Sounds fascinating. Look forward to it. Thank you. And thank you for your good questions. <laughs>